since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And together we are the Bix. Yes. Here today to discuss the immortal Shakespearean classic. Yes. Romeo and Juliet. Yes, possibly his most beloved and probably most well-known, I would say, yeah, it's probably the most famous play. It's the one that people quote most often when they um, think about Shakespeare. It's 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 the story, at least, that is most iconically connected with Shakespeare. Yeah, and and a lot of the, the most famous quotes... That people remember. If people know Shakespeare, they know uh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art there Romeo? Or to be or not to be, I to guess. To be or not to be is probably Hamlet the more is. famous one, but But I mean, people yeah. people get this. This is this mm-hmm. is a, an important play. Um, for reasons that we will get into, um, after Aiden delivers his 30-second synopsis, I'm very eager to hear this because not that Romeo and Juliet is a difficult play, but a lot happens. So how in the world are you going to condense this? Aiden? Lindsay, I'm just going to give you a little heads up. I am very well prepared for this one, far more than my usual. Did you write out a script for it? In a sense. Okay. Well, whenever you're ready, I guess I'll, I, I'm the one who has to. Yeah, ready, you have to get I need the, to get the... the timer ready, and then we will begin. <sighs> and I will show you how well I prepared. I'm I'm skeptical, but whenever you're ready, let me know. Go, go. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge, break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love, and the continuance of their parents' rage. Which, but their children's end, not could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall make our toil shall strive to mend 30 seconds thank you shakespeare for so adequately summing up your most famous play okay that's not fair (laughs) i can't help it Lindsay. this is this is how uh i was blessed to uh have stumbled across this one so because there's a prologue prologue that that explains the whole exactly and it's not your typical prologue in that you know dances around it this is the whole play this is like pyramus and bisbee's prologue (laughs) in midsummer where you just lay it all out on the line so there you go that was easy Okay, that was pretty good. I have to admit, I am gonna have a hard time uh, topping that next. Well, I mean, maybe King it'll be your John, turn. How the hell am I gonna yeah. do? But <laughs> <enough>. anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. So as Aiden very um, expertly and uh, cheatingly mm-hmm. uh, explained, yes. the play is about star-crossed lovers, yep. um, and I think that's part of the reason why it is so well-beloved today is because it speaks to some pretty universal uh, feelings of young love and infatuation, and there's, you know, sex is a big part of Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I think people really gravitate towards that. There's also the sense of, I think, some some conversations to be had about youth and age, I guess, yep. um, which are dealt with in a, in a kind of unique way in this play. 
Um, but I think to start off with, why don't we talk a little bit about um, our introductions to the play as individuals. When yeah. did you first encounter the story of Romeo and Juliet or the play um, well, as I've, a student or yeah. as an adult? So, there, I mean, there's two separate things. I mean, everybody knows the story of Romeo and Juliet. I think it's just, it's one of those, it's referenced in TV shows. Right. It's, it's uh, you know, parodied and, you know, there are versions of this kind of story told all, all the time. So yeah. I can't even remember the first time I would have been exposed right. to the story. Yeah. Uh, but Shakespeare's text, uh, I did see the play in grade 11 i believe but okay. we weren't studying it i uh usually in grade 10 i know you studied romeo and juliet I in did. grade 10 i studied merchant of venice instead uh so i never studied the play but we did have a field trip to see it in grade 11 uh and I then we read we it in this, university didn't we both go to the same yes the same production production yeah at the yeah. citadel at the citadel yeah yeah in edmonton yeah. okay uh, so, so you saw the play first. Yes. And then um, I read, uh, in university in our Shakespeare class. That was the first time I actually okay. read the play. So reading it this time, was that only the second time that you'd read it? Yes. Or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. But it was, it, again, it's, I've since seen it a couple times in yeah. various incarnations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so reading it again this time, it's, it's one of those plays that you can read very quickly once you're familiar with yeah. it. Although most right. productions do cut out a lot of stuff that's in the yep. text. Uh, so it's, it was interesting more for those scenes that aren't usually reproduced in detail to see what kind of maybe Shakespeare was going for in the in those scenes but we can come back to that later yeah what about you Lindsay I know yes so you you read in grade 10 uh well okay so as I as I hinted in in previous episodes um I have a kind of a complicated relationship with Romeo and Juliet Mm. um I first read it um around the time that the 1996-97 film the Baz Luhrmann film came out uh, and so that was the first time I saw it was in film form. Then I read it. And then in grade nine, a group of girls and I, like my friends, um, petitioned our school drama teacher to help us put on the play. So we did an adaptation of the play. And uh, we like moved the setting to like a high school and we changed all the characters around. And it was like, it was a big undertaking. Obviously, we started it in like March of that year, so it didn't actually get into production. We didn't actually put on this play, but we did. Um, we did try. So I think experiencing it twice in such a short period of time, like seeing it in a modern adaptation, Context, yeah. and then reading it and adapting it myself, which is. I guess kind of precocious for a 14-year-old to say... Were you anything but, Lindsay? Well, Let's be honest here. But uh, even looking back on it, I'm like, it's in it presumptuous, I guess, too. That, like, you know, I have any kind of um, ability to... <laughs> well, anyway. Yeah, no, but it, it's something a 14-year-old would do after sure. they've fallen in love with And this is my special, point. Yeah. I fell in love with this story, and I really... I, I enjoyed it immensely for the first three years that I thought about it from like say 1997 through to the year 2000 Mm -hmm. and then I got to grade 10 and I had it beat out of me by my grade 10 English teacher Ms. Davies who bless her heart hated this play (laughs) she had nothing but negativity about this play she thought it was dumb that she had to teach it um it was about young people like she had so much contempt for the story yeah that I really, uh, it, it changed the way I looked at the play and I and I was really turned off. I was a young mind and I was like, oh, my English teacher hates it. I should hate it. Yeah. And then I got to university and we studied it again and it didn't change much for me that this was still kind of a silly play, right? Like yeah. it didn't it didn't have the gravitas that it did when I was 13, 14. Um, Which it, is, I think, by design and <laughs> in some ways. Possibly, Sorry. right? Sorry. No, I think you're right. 
it wasn't until I became a teacher and started teaching it. Um, it's one of two plays. Actually, the other one is The Merchant of Venice. I've mm-hmm. taught Merchant of Venice and Romeo and Juliet. And it wasn't until I started teaching it and I teach it to grade nine students. So I was in grade nine when I fell in love with it. And then I'm teaching grade nine students and I'm seeing it in a way that is different now that I'm in my 30s. Yeah. And they're looking at it in a different way than I did when I was 14. But they also come to it with a hatred of the story because they're like, well, it's dumb that they die. And, you know, it's... it's well, especially if they watch the Boz Lerman. <laughs> well, yes. This is true. But I just feel like it's it's kind of my love of the play and my hatred of the play. It's like a roller coaster, right? Like I kind of go between... I am like Romeo speaking to Benvolio. <laughs> oh, brawling love. Oh, loving hate. Oh, anything of nothing first create. This is me when I discuss when you think about the play. Romeo, yeah. uh, so it's it is complicated, but I do think um, as I've gotten older, I like the play more, which is weird it's because fun. I think a lot of adults, especially maybe when they become parents, they look at this play as like it's silly infatuations and they don't understand it. And I think that says more about you than it does about the play i think the play is a little bit of a bellwether Mm -hmm. a canary in the coal mine if you will like it kind of it kind of uh highlights the thing that's wrong with the person hating on it or loving it than it does anything else Mm -hmm. if that makes sense it does no i agree um and i think a lot of that is down to the big elements and the themes of the of the play itself um obviously Love is yep. <laughs> probably the most repeated word uh, in this play. And three different kinds of love, really, I think. Yeah. There's maybe four. There's like the familial love, the love that parents have for their children and children for their parents. There's um, romantic love, obviously, between Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And then there's this brotherly love that exists between Romeo and his mates. Um, and, and then I, I guess I kind of, as I was compiling the notes, I'm like, what about Romeo and Friar Lawrence? Is that a kind of brotherly love or is that like a priestly religious yeah, love? Th- there is kind of like a love of God strewn throughout because yeah. I mean, that's what keeps Juliet partly, uh, and understandably from wanting to marry Paris, mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the latter half Af- of the play, yes, because after she's, after she's already married, yeah. because it would be against, it'd, it'd yeah. be in violation of God's mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what kind of, after the whole thing's blown up in everyone's face, uh, it's Friar Lawrence's explanation that kind of, uh, grants this heavenly, yes. uh, okayness. Absolution. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's a much better word than okayness, uh, to the, <laughs> to the whole endeavor because, yeah. Uh, it was under the purview of God the whole time. So I think that yeah. I think that's kind of an unspoken element because there's really no mention of love of God really throughout. No, I think Friar Lawrence is kind of the play's stand-in for that, yeah. and his actions, um, whether you look at them as noble or misguided, um, he's trying to shepherd these youths towards some kind of resolution that will be okay Mm -hmm. and and that is kind of seen as like the presence of god i guess the presence of a a religious authority anyway um but let's start with where aiden started at the prologue um Mm -hmm. one of the things that i always do when i teach this is is we talk about spoiler alerts and we talk about the modern obsession with not knowing the end of the story before we start it and romeo and juliet as you said aiden Everybody knows how, how it ends, yeah. right? And and even if you don't know how it ends, if you watch the prologue or read the prologue, you know how it ends. Yeah. Why do you think <laughs> prologues like this exist? Uh, 
Well, I mean, we did just kind of do a bit of research on this, so I kind of know why it exists, but... Uh, yeah, that's but- why I'm asking, Aiden. I'm setting you up. This is a rhetorical device Well, here. let me tell you how, what I always thought okay, uh, from these early Shakespeare ones is that it was just kind of a convention handed down from time. Right. Uh, that the Because I, I remember even uh, the choruses in, in Greek tragedies and yeah, stuff like that would yeah. kind of lay out what's going to happen even in like the next act or, or something like that. Or comment on what's happening in exactly, the play. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like there was always this kind of objective... Uh, outside force on on a performance yeah. and so it wasn't really unexpected mm-hmm. um, but we did do a bit more research and yeah. it, it it seems to have mostly been a, a bit of a preemptive mea culpa yeah. uh, before the play was put on especially if it was in the early stages that's why a lot of other prologues uh, it's thought that most Shakespeare plays probably had prologues yeah. at some point um, but they weren't recorded for posterity because they were either forgettable or they were purely just an apology in advance yeah. so uh, they, the, they'd have an actor go out there and say sorry if it kind of sucks you know but you know we're doing what we can and you know like you know we're we can't be all of france like the henry v yes. uh, uh prologue features that like there's no way we can be agincourt you know we can't yeah. have thousands of people up on the stage but we're going to do our best to, to convey the the feeling of it anyways uh and so most of the prologues were probably along those mm-hmm. uh bends and so they didn't really there's no point in keeping them after the, well, the place Well, and I also read that um, the prologue might have differed from night to night, and depending on who was in the audience, if there was, um, yeah. if it was in front of a royal court, it might be different than yeah. if it was in front of the rabble, right? Yeah. So um, the point of recording them would have been Moot. kind of dumb. Yeah, yeah like yeah. there there was no point. No. Uh, which makes it all the more striking that the prologues that we do have have survived. Why those? And and it and it begs the question what other prologues if the prologue was different every night, is there another? Were there a yeah. hundred different prologues yeah. to Romeo and Did Juliet they just that were all different? Night? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like it 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 kind of makes that really it's an interesting idea. It is. Right? I mean and this one's so interesting to uh to read though because it, it is so iconic and it does yeah. lay out the plot yeah. so clearly. It, it feels like the other ones you could um, obviously we do get by just fine without prologues yeah. in a lot of the cases but this one it feels like an integral part of the story to well, have the, the the feuding houses explained but what what strikes me about it too is that even if if you don't have the prologue and there are performances where you they skip it I've seen films where they I think the Zeffirelli version doesn't have the full prologue mm, okay. um, and I've seen other productions where they get rid of it too movies I think mm-hmm. Um you still know what's going on when you have Samson and Gregory come yeah, in, come and in you know and the Montagues start, and the yeah. Capulets start fighting. Like you get it right yeah, away that our quarrel is with our with uh, our our masters and not their men or whatever yeah, 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 whatever yeah. they say. Yeah. Um, it's it's like it's present. It's there. You don't need the prologue, just like you said with huh. all the other plays. You don't really need it. So yeah. why do we think it's so in- integral to the play? It's not, especially if this was such a commonplace thing that every play had it. Why does it matter that yeah, this, this one. one has it? And why do we stick to it so closely? Yeah, I think yeah. it's because it's it's first of all it's a beautiful sonnet. It's a lovely. It it's just encapsulation. Nice yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of it. Um, the story itself is so tragic that we don't need to be reminded that Romeo and Juliet are going to die because we know the conventions of the tragedy yeah. says their names are in the title. They're going to die. So yeah. we know that going in. This was not an original story. I mean, it was passed down. It's an Italian story. It comes with a, a lot of baggage mm-hmm. um, in and of itself. So it's not like we don't know how the story's going to end. So we need to be reminded. Yeah. 
So there has to be some other reason why it's stuck around. And and I, I think it's partly because of the language and partly because it's attached to a play that has been in pretty much constant production ever yeah. since the 1590s. Yeah, there, yeah. So, I mean, that there's nothing about the prologue that makes it essential aside from those things, which we've kind of ascribed to it yeah. in a way. Yeah, it's kind of a self-reinforcing. So, yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. which is nice. I, yeah. I don't. I, I still love the prologue. It's I memorized it. It's one of my favorite pieces of one of my favorite sonnets. Let's yeah. let's include it in the sonnets, hey? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is it is an interesting um, thing, and it's fun to kind of present that to um, to students. Yeah. And to say, here's the whole thing, and you can have some really interesting discussions. I have had interesting discussions with, yeah. with ninth graders thinking, yeah. who are like, you know, it's stupid. Why would you well, do it that? ruins the whole play? I'm like, yeah. but you knew how it ended anyway. So really, <laughs> what's your argument here? Um, so, yeah, let's dive into some of the big topics we've got going on in the play. I think starting off right off the top, the the idea of love mm-hmm. and the different kinds of love that we yeah. have um, expressed in the play. And I don't know. I have in my notes here to start off with familial love. What yeah. do you think? Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's, it's a force that's uh, misaligned throughout the play, I would say, because okay. the Capulets um, are kind of... They're they're the family that you see the most of yes. because you see so much of Juliet and the yes. nurse and her parents are the ones forcing her to marry. the The Montagues are kind of uh, they're they're not present for most of the play. Right. Uh, they start off the plays seeking Romeo and then they just pop in, you know, as yeah. needed yeah. throughout. Uh, but they're not they're not huge forces on his life. So uh, you really do get the sense of what this familial love looks like from Juliet's point of view and that's interesting because it is very demanding and mm-hmm. very uh contractual and it's very based on her being a woman yeah um thank you that's what I was gonna say <laughs> well yeah and it, <laughs> that's well, why we see so much of the Capulets and not as much of the Montagues because yeah. Romeo is a boy and his parents don't matter yeah but for Juliet she is the property of her parents she's yeah. the property of her father yeah exactly and she lives in her father's house and that so is therefore that's her entire that's world, her entire world. She li- she's not allowed to leave I mean like Basically, she, yeah. she escapes she at the ask end permission to go to church, church so that yeah. she can yeah. you know absolve herself of the sin of displeasing her father like, <laughs> it's, just, it's just crazy to think about now and that's that's one of those things that i'm sure your kids are like they if they even pick up on the fact that she never leaves the house yeah uh i'm sure they would question like why like how does that work yeah um but it's just you know that was the time and that mm-hmm. was the convention um yeah. but it's interesting that that is kind of like the major force is that mm-hmm. familial love is what draws the montagues and the capulets to together into these these clans that are feuding and fighting over each yeah. other is this sense of love for the patriarch yes uh you know father montague and father capulet yeah uh the the top dogs in this family tree um all their their love is supposed to be uh supporting that figure right um and so it's it's interesting that it acts as like the political force is this family dynamic yeah um as well which is it just it's it's a strange thing to to think about in this play because it's mm-hmm. it's again kind of an unseen force kind of like the the godly love right. in the fact that it's just there and present and assumed yeah uh, it's not discussed really except for Juliet's actual involvement with Paris and and that whole thing yeah um, I still think it is interesting though that when we first meet Capulet. Um, he does show some concern for his daughter which is not mm-hmm. something that is present throughout i would say his no he shifts his mind pretty quick. very yeah. quickly which we'll get to but he starts off when paris petitions him to to marry juliet capulet is like 
she's not yet 14. Just give her two more years because she's she's still a stranger into the world. Um, she doesn't know herself. She's all I have left mm-hmm. is something that he says. Yep. Like she is the hope of, of everything for me. Don't take her from me yet. So I think there is there is some fatherly affection that is present in that in a weird way because even though he changes his mind very quickly and, and eventually grants Paris the permission and to it, marry Juliet. And enforces it on Juliet. Exactly. Um, with that horrible scene where where it's like, I, you're yeah. mine, I will I will give you to my, to my friends. Friend, yeah. If you're not, I cash you out into the streets. You can hang, beg, starve. Yeah. Like, I don't care. Um, which really underscores his um, dominance at the head of that Capulet family. Yeah. But also the view that this... This woman that he, this child, who he had so much care and devotion for is now nothing more than a piece of property that he wanted to give to somebody and now she's being disobedient. Yeah, I think think it's interesting though that that also applies in the case of Tybalt though because Tybalt is like, oh, I want to fight Romeo at this party. Right. And Capulet's like, no, 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 like, this is my party. We're going to do whatever. And then yeah. when Tybalt speaks up, it instantly turns to anger, too. Yeah. So, I mean, this this idea that familial love is actually the inconstant one yeah. in this play is kind of interesting yeah. because the Capulets, the love doesn't last. It, no. it, it turns on a dime and it's directed towards their own family members. Yeah. Um, and even uh, to an extent, that's, that's kind of true of... Uh, Hamlet and uh, Mercutio, although Mercutio's an interesting character. Mer- Hamlet? Yeah. Did I say Hamlet You again? did say Hamlet. It's Romeo, but, it, it, okay. you know, the male lead yes, in okay, a play okay. written by Shakespeare. All, always Hamlet. It's always Hamlet. <laughs> uh, so between uh, Romeo and Mercutio, because right. they they have a, a similar kind of dynamic, but it's brotherly love. Great, great yeah, segue, great segue. Into, okay. into brotherly let's, love. Let's go there. Because that's the other um, driving force for uh, where familial love turns to romantic love for for Juliet and she's constantly battling between those two. Mm-hmm. Romeo is battling between romantic love and brotherly love. And yeah. I think Mercutio and Benvolio kind of stand in as the parental figures in a way. They're yeah. they're they're more present in in Romeo's life and have more of a say even at the beginning of the play when Lord and Lady Montague are looking for Romeo mm-hmm. and want it's, to know yeah. he wasn't right glad I was that he was not at this fray yeah. um, or whatever the quote is. Yeah. Um it's Benvolio who leaves yeah, to, to go, go talk, talk to him and talk sense into him and find out his mind, right? Yeah. Because friends are the most important thing, as we've talked about many times before. The friendship between men was was paramount, yes. right? And, and almost superseded the love that a man would have for his wife. So when Benvolio and Mercutio are kind of the voices of reason in the beginning because Romeo is infatuated with Rosaline this other woman who we never see she never speaks she's just this chaste woman that Romeo can't get to uh, love him back um and Benvolio is like there are other other fish in the sea, yeah, man. Yeah. Like just everything's good. And Mercutio just open up is like again, we're good. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and Mercutio is like love is dumb anyway. Yeah, he's like this romantic love is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, come join us. He he gets really excited when Romeo um, casts off this sadness that he carries with him and starts bantering with him again because that is the. Um, that's where the 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 love is actually existing. Mm-hmm. It's between the two of them. And when when Romeo looks at a woman, whether it's Rosaline or Juliet, Mercutio gets testy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's really present in the Queen Mab speech, which we'll get to when we talk about some of the important quotes from this play. Um, but but yeah, I think that's where Romeo is is kind of um, 
stuck between his love for Juliet and his love for Mercutio. And it really comes out in Mercutio's death scene because um, Romeo doesn't want to fight and Mercutio has to step up for him because, and then Mercutio dies. And that sends Romeo into a tailspin that kicks off the the last act. Yeah, all the bad stuff in the play. So it's, um, it's not his father, it's not his mother, but it's his boys, his crew that he is torn between his love for them and his love for Juliet. It's, it's not familial love necessarily as much as it is this brotherly love, I guess. Yeah. Then of course there's the last kind of love, which is the romantic romantic love, which which is is the obvious one uh, in terms of importance in the play. And it Mm -hmm. drives a lot of the action. Um, But it's, it's interesting that, uh, and again, we've we've kind of talked about this already. You just mentioned it with mm-hmm. Mercutio and Romeo. Is that uh, the romantic love is the one that sticks throughout? Mm-hmm. Except for, I mean, Ros- switching from Rosalind to Juliet Julia. is obviously a, a, a quick change of yeah. heart, uh, as would be expected under young lovers. But uh, after that point, despite only having four scenes together, yes. Lindsay, you were very amazed by this because we yes. read it in the the. Uh, it feels much essay. bigger. It's feels like, like, oh my god, they should have more than that. But they've they're only in four scenes, scenes together. together. And, <laughs> Does that include the death scene? Yeah. Yeah. So well, really... no, the death scene isn't really together because yeah, they don't they're really not. They have don't speak. Lines, yeah, they but, don't speak back yeah. and forth. But uh, yeah, so I mean, there's only these four scenes that hold these characters together. Yet they are steadfast in their love. Mm-hmm. They take such extreme measures. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's very easy to write off as young lust and and you know young people sure. being dumb and and not being able to control their emotions. But at the same time, of all the types of love we've talked about, yep. this is the only one that stands up to the rigor of life or death situations, really. Right. Is they, that is the one constant in the play. Um, and it, it's just it's just an interesting point. But Yeah, even if it's... You could argue that the, the brotherly love aspect is, at least for Benvolio and Mercutio towards Romeo, is steadfast. But mm-hmm. Romeo doesn't have that same feeling back. He's Well, because he, he has competing, really he has competing exactly. love, right? And, exactly. and when you have those, the other characters aren't burdened by that. None, none of the characters... Uh, even Paris, I would say, yeah. aren't burdened by any sense of having a competing love interest. Yeah. There's there's no. the familial love, loyalty to your clan, and then there's the brotherly love between the members of that clan. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all in, in harmony alignment, again, except for maybe Tybalt and Father Capulet. Right. Uh, disagreeing about something like that. And when those well, two... and Capulet and Juliet. Yeah. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. But yeah, that's it. Between the main, except for the main characters, everybody else is very clear lines of of reporting yeah. in terms of the love relationship. Clear lines of reporting, and uh, and it's interesting because this is the point where a lot of that criticism comes in. As you said, people dismiss this as um, infants; they're children. Mm-hmm. They they don't know what love is because they're too young, and we don't know how old Romeo is. But he's acting rashly enough that he's probably not older than 20 let's say he's still probably a teenager yeah um so when you look at that and and you you really do look at their relationship which lasts all of maybe three or four days yeah they go from not knowing each other to dying for each other and that is is pretty rash and unadvised and and a lot of people are like, it's not really a romantic play. It's, it's, you know, yeah, but the a play, play stupidity. Yeah. yeah but <laughs> no. the play doesn't pretend that this is uh, like unthought through the, yeah. even if the characters aren't thinking through Shakespeare was thinking it through because yeah. the, the references to time and all of this stuff come up again and again throughout mm-hmm. the play. Friar Lawrence gives his, um, you know, during the, the wedding that um, it's, 
it's it's you need to love moderately. Uh, yes, yes. They stumble who run fast, you mm-hmm. know, when, when Romeo is going off to to, yeah, to be with yeah, Juliet, yeah. right? I mean, all of these things are, are remarked upon frequently. And it's even present in the other characters who aren't in love romantically when you have, you know, Capulet changing his mind in his familial love to protect Juliet from marriage and then to give her away so quickly, yeah. right? That, that's right, after an, her, right after Tybalt dies, too, by the way. Basically, yeah. right? Like, it's a very quick change. <laughs> the nurse taking the side of Romeo and then immediately after Tybalt's death and, and the idea that she should marry Paris saying, no, you know, yeah, the second match will exceed yeah. the first. Yeah. Like, just go marry with yeah. Paris, right? It's like those older characters are allowed to be inconstant and changeable yeah. but the young people aren't and I think that is where some of the brilliance of the play comes in mm-hmm. in that everybody in this play kind of changes on a dime you know yeah. a lot of the main ideas happen because of people changing their minds yeah. on it very very quickly yeah. a lot of the problems are set up that way yeah. so it's not just the kids yeah. it's everybody yeah I, I think it's human nature to be impatient and want these things to happen now right and that's what is being remarked upon it's not a play about young love it's a play about human being human humanity yeah. and and what are the things that make us all human and unfortunately in this case it leads to the death of yeah, protagonist. Yeah, right. yeah, and a whole bunch of other people, but yeah, that's yeah. True. I mean, Paris deserved it, especially when he's played by Paul Rudd. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another main idea I think that comes out of the play is this um, idea of fate and destiny, mm-hmm. which is remarked upon right from the very beginning. The prologue talks about these um, lovers being star-crossed, which interestingly is often misinterpreted i have a lot of students who are like well they the star crossed that means that they were the stars aligned and they were meant to be together it's like not quite no, it's because the opposite crossed. yeah yes. the stars crossed and prevented them from yes exactly and and because as we know elizabethans believed so much in in these um, ideas like fate and, yeah. yeah well and also astrology and, and yeah, that yeah, kind of yeah, thing yeah. being star-crossed meant that there was something very powerful that was preventing you from being together so and i'd say in this in the story itself it most uh physically takes the form of the uh plague that keeps the uh other friar from yes. delivering the message to romeo that would have solved maybe at least for the short term uh, all the problems of the couple you know if, yeah. if that message has gone through but God struck that pl- yes, house the of the plague. Stars, yes, yeah, the stars right? struck him down, and yeah. therefore that just unraveled all the plans. And they plans. they kind of all know this. All of these characters mm-hmm. know that they're fighting against. Even if they yeah. don't know how this is going to end, they feel this force is preventing them from doing things. And you get, you know, um, Romeo especially. He understands that, um, I think the line is, some consequence yet hanging in the stars shall bitterly begin, right? Mm-hmm. And he's he's... He knows that this is something bad is going to happen. And he knows that he he can't arrive at the ball, at the Capulet's ball, too early or too late. Like, this is, there's something pushing him to do this. He's being controlled by something other than himself. Yeah. And then when um, when he kills Tybalt, he's fortune's fool. Yeah. When Juliet dies, and, and he, when Balthazar tells him Juliet dies, yeah. even though he realizes it's, or he doesn't realize that she's not actually dead, yeah. he's defying the stars. Oh, I defy you stars, yeah. right? He knows that this is something he's up against, even yeah. though he, do, he can't see where it's leading him. 
he of all the characters kind of understands that this is something powerful that he's up against right and that's maybe something that we don't believe in as much today but would definitely have been in force at the time and i think that adds part of the uh long lasting allure to the to the play Mm -hmm. is the fact that there is this this uh, mystical sense that these two people were meant to be together. Right. Um, but then fate disallowed it. Yeah. Fate both brought them together and then pulled them apart in yeah. order to heal the larger yeah. rift between the families. They were a means to an end, yes. not an end unto themselves. But at the same time, we see them as the end unto themselves while we're watching the play. So it bring that's where the pathos kind of comes from in this right. sense is the fact that we want them to succeed and we want them to be happy. Um, but at the same time... The, the story is not about them. The story is about the families. Yeah. And uh, you lose the perspective of that. That's what makes the play uh, so engaging in a sense is that uh, it tells you right from the beginning, like, this is this is about these two two houses alike in dignity. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's nothing different there's, about these yeah, two. They're, literally. They're exactly equal. Uh, and yet they're fighting. Yeah. Uh, so let's bring them together into a bond a union here's the story of that but it's not the larger story the larger story is that union not the individual people who make it happen well and that's even something that the the Folger essay brings up that that it's not about Romeo and Juliet as individuals Mm -hmm. fighting this fight they are united against these greater forces Um, but it's it's kind of part of the tragedy that they don't realize the roles that they're playing in this yeah or that Romeo they kind of get it like they yeah. kind of understand that there's something beyond their control but they don't know how how to deal with that and yeah. they don't see the bigger picture yeah. which is partly because they're characters in a play and and partly because they're young and partly because they're blinded by love but yeah. it's it's all part of that tragedy of of Romeo and Juliet right? yeah, and the Folger uh, essay made a great point about how the the point where this goes off the rails for them is when they decide to get married without their parental consent yeah. you know you have the sense that if they'd fallen in love um, maybe eloped out into the countryside or something and, and forced their families to reconcile and then come back for a, a marriage within their within the bonds of, of familial love as well right it would have been a different story but they don't they bypass that they go straight to God yes. and God says yeah okay you can be married but there's going to be consequences for going outside of the the familial bonds that are otherwise holding you tight um and it's it's just interesting to to see how that uh, plays out uh, in their small story and then the larger story of the families. So, yeah, yeah. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Uh, I think the last. No, I have. Yeah, you had two more. Two more. Two more yeah, points. second so last. Yeah, is... the the objectification of women. Mm-hmm. I think is an important one. Um, we know at this time that. Um, women were still largely considered property. This was something that, you know, existed until the 1950s, I think, when you start seeing, well, even later, when women are allowed to buy cars without their husbands co-signing. So 94? Well, this is what I mean. This is a constant battle for personhood that that women have struggled against for years and years and years. Um, So so women are literally objects to be traded and, and bartered with, right? And claimed. They're, and claimed. Mm-hmm. They're, they're objects of affection. In the case of Rosalind, she's not a human. She's just yeah. something that Romeo wants. Yeah. He doesn't know anything about her, really, aside from the fact yeah. that she's rejected his advances numerous times. And she's beautiful. And she's beautiful. And um, celibate. <laughs> and, well, yeah, or, or at the very least, she's not going to give it up. Yeah. Um, and, or they're, they're um, 
pawns, I guess, in a in a, yeah. a play of you know. Yeah. Why gonna... does Capulet want to marry her to Paris? Well, it will probably strengthen some alliance there between exactly. the two families. Treat like, her like this a princess, is... marrying her off exactly. to a foreign rival to. And that the that's the role that women have, and Juliet is on the cusp of going from child to wife, mm-hmm. and it's remarked upon. Um, numerous times. Very numerous. But I think the play, even from the very beginning, shows us that this is how women are perceived in the conversation that Samson and Gregory have. Yes. When they talk about um, the the Capulet women, that they'll yeah. beat the men, they'll force the men to the wall, and then they'll push the women to the wall and yeah. take their maiden heads, yeah. right? Which is, uh, there's a lot of fancy wordplay in there, but basically it's a rape fantasy for these two Montague men who are like will kill their men and rape their women yeah. like that's how they're going to exert power and that's mm-hmm. how that's how this stuff typically plays out yeah. men kill each other to show dominance over other men yeah. and they show dominance over women by raping them mm-hmm. and that's a common denominator well that's that's to this traditional day. masculinity in its entirety really yeah is really just yeah it's yeah. fucking and fighting and if you can't get the first one uh, consensually, then you take it, and right. that's that's how it's always been portrayed. So, so it's, it's setting yeah. it up from the very beginning that this is this is the dynamic, this is the world that these women are being brought into, and unless you are um, sexless like the nurse, mm-hmm. right, your your role is as a, a, a fuck toy basically mm-hmm. you're something to be desired yeah. and it's remarked upon by the nurse to Juliet that um, even when she was a little girl her husband the nurse's husband would joke with her that because um, the nurse tells this embarrassing story about how yeah. Juliet fell and hit her head and started crying and her husband's like well one day you'll fall on your back won't you yeah. you know and Juliet's like yeah of course because she's crying because she's three and yeah. And everybody's laughing because it's hilarious that, of course, you know, as a woman ages, that's women grow by men. This is how you do it. You fall on your back and then you get a baby in your belly. And that is your role. Even as a three-year-old, they're sexualizing her future and her interactions with men and her interactions with the world. People still tell those kind of jokes, too, by the way. (laughs) Well, no, of course they do. And it's, it's wrong and it's not okay. But it's what people do. It's how we get, you know parents telling their three-year-old daughter to cross her legs when she's sitting you know um don't open your legs when you're sitting on the the preschool carpet because it's inappropriate and yet yeah it's dumb while you're wearing jeans yeah yeah. exactly it's ridiculous it's sexist and and it's right here in in the beginning of the play for Juliet as she's being told that her father is arranging a marriage for her and she's only 13 yeah like her birthday isn't until it's like a fortnight and a few odd days away so it's just like you know yeah she's she's still a child and when I tell my students that they're like 13 yeah but her mother even says, I was your age, age when, when I had you. Yeah. So maybe and her mom's Paris, 26. Well, that's what I mean, right? Like, <laughs> like it's it's crazy, crazy when you think yeah. about it. Um, and I think it, it, it blows my mind, but it also, I think this wasn't necessarily the norm. I've watched a few documentaries and I've read a few things that, you know, marriages might have happened, but the yes. sex didn't happen until later. Like they would be unconsummated well, until yeah because women did die of childbirth yeah. very young and especially yeah exactly if they had children too young before they were physically mature yeah. enough they, like they, they wouldn't would have children so, again if they survived yeah. right so there was i think there was a i can't remember who it was one of the kings an early king 
I can't remember. Uh, his mother was like 12 when, when yeah. she gave birth I think to him. Told me about this. And she never had another child yeah. because she was wrecked. Like yeah. her body was wrecked because she was so young. And that was uncommon. I don't think they, they, you know, so Juliet might have been married at 13, but maybe she wouldn't have pumped out a baby until she was 16. Although her mother apparently did. So, apparently. Yeah, so it was... Yeah, I mean, it's not... Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm not going to quibble with Shakespeare, who was writing contemporaneously. And <laughs> exactly. This is, when, yeah. this is what he's saying. So that's great. But it's still, it still does trouble a lot of us when we read it, because mm-hmm. the subjectification of women is really thrown at your face in the first few scenes of yeah. Act 1. And uh, and but, it doesn't stop. Yeah, exactly. And it dictates her entire arc, really. I mean, from I mean, right up to her father kicking, threatening to kick her out. It's all based around the fact that she is property. Uh, she is there to marry yeah. and produce babies. And Paris is upfront about that. Yeah. The only one who's not is Romeo. And yeah. and uh, between the two of them, their romantic love doesn't consider children no. at all even though they they're you know most productions have it uh they, they're sleeping together when they, they have the night after the marriage yeah, scene you know they've had sex but it's it's not for, for the purposes the, of procreation not for the purposes of procreation and it, there's nothing familial about their love it is again yeah. that dichotomy now almost of between those two types of loves and keeping theirs purely romantic yeah uh kind of gets rid of a lot of the objectification because yeah. it's not uh, Romeo never calls Juliet his property. No. It's his wife, yes, yeah. but it's it's almost always joined with, you know, and I'm your husband, you know. Yeah. It, it is it is a sense of co-ownership. And that's that's one of the more revolutionary parts about this play as yeah. well in the time period was yeah. uh, and I think we're going to get into more of this uh in a second, but it's it's really saying that um having an individual love yeah and having that be uh enough enough yeah. was like revolutionary yeah. because the this fam- these familial ties were everything in you know a peasant kind of setting the, you know the medieval ages but as you're approaching the renaissance and as you're approaching urban urbanization and you have all these other market forces at play uh people don't have necessarily the huge family trees and interconnections and everything uh they they're not reliant on that for survival so they have to form their own relationships to get yeah. by and, and that, that's, that's what that's yeah. what they're doing and that's exactly. what's so i think you're right absolutely revolutionary about the the story of romeo and juliet is that they aren't being driven by um the need to marry they want this they want them and it's almost like juliet takes on such a different role when she's she woos yeah, Romeo, like yeah. she admits to her love for him before he's given hers, yeah. his to her yeah. in the balcony scene. Like, like he even remarks on on it. Like, tell me you love me, and she's like, I did I before did already, you requested yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I I told you I'm so embarrassed that I did that, but I did. Yeah. And then she's the one who proposes marriage. Yeah, she's the one who says, I'll send someone to you if you want to marry me. I'll send someone to you tomorrow morning, and we'll set it up. Like her role completely changes she goes from being a submissive daughter to being a forthright woman who is in charge of her destiny only when it when it's with romeo and that's because they're allowed to be equals they're allowed to be in love with each other and have that be enough you need to be if if it's true truly romantic love it is necessarily an equal partnership it's both parties saying yes you i like you yes i want to be with you and that in implies a sense of individualism that that you know, didn't they, exist. They couldn't, you couldn't have that in, in a traditional marriage at this time. So it is, it is a revolutionary kind of thing. And the fact that, uh, I think that gets downplayed 
a lot uh, in modern telling, well, even the Boslerman. Especially, especially when you have people saying, well, they're just kids. Yes. It, it immediately neuters their love. Yeah. And it becomes just about um, the sexual infatuation with mm-hmm. one another, which admittedly is there. Is there, definitely. But when it's only that and you discount the, I think this is coming into our, our last point, which is about the differences in age and the generation yeah, gap yeah, here. Yeah. Um, it's, if you discount all of that other, the interplay and the, the, the societal, sociocultural stuff that's going on there, when you look at Romeo and Juliet, it's just about sex mm-hmm. and, and infatuation and lust. You miss so much more of the, the play and what the play is telling us about this change, not just from medieval to Renaissance, because that is there and there was changing dynamics there. But I think it's speaking to a larger generation gap that has mm-hmm. always existed between parents and their children. Yeah. You know, this is not, um, I, I told Aiden that I was going to try and work this in. So I'm, I'm going to try right <laughs> do, now. Do it now. Um, it's like we have this okay boomer thing going on that happened. Well, it's, it's, it's over now. Over the now, meme yeah. is dead, but it <laughs> happened and people were really upset about it. But it's not like this is the only time when an older generation hasn't understood the younger generation. This mm-hmm. has happened for years. It happened in the 60s. It's happened in the 1560s. I mean, it, there was always a, a bemoaning the waywardness of the next generation. Yeah. We don't understand what they're doing. And yeah. that's what's happening here, except that the stakes are so much higher. It's not just, I want to go to Woodstock and smoke weed, and or I want to you know make jokes at your expense because you've fucked up the whole world for yeah. me um it's it's well that's pretty high stakes i suppose <laughs> yeah. but it's like um this is this is what i i want this i'm an individual i want this marriage i want this relationship mm-hmm. and i don't think i need to listen to you i don't need your permission to marry this person i'm just gonna do it and then juliet takes him back to her father's house <laughs> To consummate that marriage, it's like the biggest okay boomer that you could have, right? Like it's really something, I think. And and that that is missed if you if you don't pay attention to it. I think people miss that. I missed it. I think it's something that for years, you know, I just glossed over it. That that the parents are fundamentally misunderstanding what their children are saying. It's yeah. it's a the play is almost a scathing rebuke of bad parenting. Yeah. You know? Well it's it's kind of like a, a peanut sketch in a sense. It's like they they're talking totally different yes. languages. They are talking the language of familial love because they have a family. Yeah. Romeo and Juliet do not have that family. So they are allowed to experience this other kind of love. And they they do and they they take full possession of it for themselves. And uh, when you come into loggerheads with those with those two concepts clashing, um, yeah, yeah, it, it becomes a generational yeah. divide, and it's kind of interesting that I get the sense that Romeo is younger than most of his other male friends, the Benvolios yeah. and the Crucios. Like yeah. maybe they're a little bit older and wiser, and they they've kind of maybe experienced a hint of romantic love and found it wasn't for them or something. Right. You know, I, just the way Mercutio especially talks about. Uh, it talks about romantic love and mm-hmm. and how fickle it is and everything. Yeah. Uh, you get the sense that he's maybe supposed to be the, the wiser voice. Um, you don't really get it from a feminine side except for maybe from the nurse. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, who's well past any sort of romantic love and her references to her husband are kind of like, yeah. he was a good man, but he was just a man kind of like, yeah. it, it, it's just, it's a different dynamic there. Um, but, but to have these, uh, 
concepts kind of just just supposed mm-hmm. uh, is is really interesting. I kind of lost my thought halfway through. That's there, okay. In case you couldn't tell, Lynn. Sorry. It's all uh, good. <laughs> I think we're all we're all still talking about the same idea here, which is just that the the language that they're speaking is not at all the same. Yeah. They, you know, when it's funny that that Juliet's mother can't speak to her own daughter without the nurse being present. Like that is almost an indication of how little they, like the translation doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. Um, the fire, fire Lawrence kind of serves the same purpose between, uh, between the two families, especially. Sure. Yeah. But but even between Romeo and, uh, his family as he's kind of like a family friend who is, who's able to understand both sides yeah. of the language. Yeah. And that's kind of where the nurse steps in, but it, but it speaks to the idea that, um, Juliet's mother didn't have the same kind of love for Juliet's father that Juliet will have for anybody. Yeah. Like their, their relationship was arranged probably. Mm-hmm. And she became a mother because that was what was expected. And she's excited for Juliet to have that opportunity. She's not excited. She's not ushering her into womanhood in order for her to find romantic love. She's expecting her to find her new family and have that new familial bond. Um, The nurse doesn't even really, isn't able to help her much. She does help set up the marriage, the wedding, mm-hmm. and she does kind of understand, but it and and so I guess her relationship is is sort of brotherly. It falls into that brotherly love category. She's Juliet's confidant. She's she's the Benvolio to uh to Juliet in a way. Mm-hmm. Um but it's it's it only goes so far because she's still older she's still like she nursed her when she was a baby literally um so she's she doesn't understand that that romantic love is such a force because she, if she did she wouldn't counsel Juliet to marry Paris yeah. right she would understand that this is something she can't she, she couldn't do uh and just to tie these kind of it's just an interesting little nugget because uh, I was listening to the the Folger Shakespeare Library has their own podcast series yeah, as well yeah. uh, which is a great one if you obviously probably listened to that one before this but if you aren't if you haven't yet uh, do try it out uh, and they had an, uh, an interesting one on Shakespeare in translation mm. uh, and in Chinese most of the time uh, love is translated it's translated as filial piety oh. so it works really kind of sort of well in something like Romeo and Juliet because there are those well it, it complicates the Romeo and yeah, Juliet story for sure uh, because, because when Romeo and Juliet are talking to each other about yes, love it, it becomes is, filial piety yeah it's interesting it's, it's kind of like we're we're sh- we're forming so is this there, bond is there no word in Chinese oh, yeah, no, for romantic love yeah there is but so it's, why would they not uh because it translate it's I think it's more of a traditional uh huh. thing like this is how it's always kind of been translated and I think most of the uh, words for love. If anybody actually speaks uh, any Chinese language uh, fluently, please correct us. But uh, I think it does always usually kind of have a a, a connotation mm-hmm. of having a familial component to it. Even when you're talking about the love between a husband and wife. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I think I think it's uh, interesting. It's just yeah, it's just an interesting tidbit. But it, that, but it is interesting that that there. So this exists. This concept exists in other languages. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really exist in English. The yeah. love, it's love. It's love. Love is the well, word that we use. To, exactly. We have it, to preface it with another, yeah. like, adjective to yeah. describe what kind yeah, of love some, we some are. Some languages do have different, different loves, words for you know, it. for yeah. different types of love. So, yeah, it's, it is interesting that English is... Linguistically, yeah. it's and, and, I mean, we, we'll, at some point we might do an episode on, on Shakespeare and translation because mm-hmm. it is such an interesting mm-hmm. uh, topic. But uh, I just wanted to mention it here because we were hitting on it so closely in our discussion anyways. 
So a lot of the criticism of the play, um, as we've talked about, is is kind of centered on this idea of the main characters being too young um, to really understand the moves that they're making. And so it, it cheapens all of the acts. It makes them seem completely out of character. And the other thing that, that really um, brings that into contrast is that we don't really know why... Montagues and Capulets are fighting. Yeah. There's no mention of that at all at Age any point in the play. Yeah, it's, it's just an it's, ancient yeah, grudge. Yeah. And and so it's in, it's good in a sense that modern productions or productions throughout the years can really put whatever spin on that yeah. they want. I well, read West about Side Story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like any you can adaptation. Make it, yeah. You know, we read about another one that was set in the 80s. I think that was about. Um, it was like a, a Chinese a gang, gang versus in New a, York. Yeah, versus a. Hispanic gang or something like that. I don't that. remember. Yeah, yeah, but it yeah. was it was like gang warfare, yeah. which is a popular way to do it. Um, I read about a production that was um, Israeli-Palestinian. So yeah. they were well, like, I mean, yeah. it puts it into a very <laughs> modern context that you could very easily kind of plug into it as a, as a contemporary audience member. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that without that firm context people don't really understand how two families could hate each other so much that it would drive their children to do something like this, yeah. right? And so maybe some of the criticism fits into into that a little bit more. Like if there was a strong reason, like if, if this grudge went back uh, hundreds of years because so-and-so killed so-and-so's father yeah prepare to, to die. die like if it was if it was that kind of thing and we or if you know there in any of the history plays where it's like you so and so usurped my father and now yeah, i'm gonna yeah, usurp yeah. you or whatever i mean at least there's some basis to understanding it yeah. without it, it it leaves it very open and then you can have a Baz Luhrmann type production which yeah. sets it in like a modern city yeah the, you know and well and, yeah any anything yeah really, like or yeah. Romeo and Juliet where it's yeah. just you know two houses on the same street that are just <laughs> separated by a wall you know yeah. or it 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 leaves it very open to interpretation which is good and it makes my job as a teacher really easy because then I can tell my kids set it and you know take a scene from the play and set it in another place and time where and, there's a conflict where and, there's a conflict yeah, yeah. and so i have students who are like rival football teams and yeah. and you know it's it's, it's, it's members a from great either template side. To, to absolutely from, you yeah. can graft whatever you want onto the play yeah um but you have to bring that meaning with you yeah and i think without that meaning being present in the play proper um the love kind of feels like it's not rooted in anything mm. and it maybe feels unearned why are they killing themselves when their families just don't get along? And, and if you don't have the well, context for it, you might mm, not understand. I'd say the play itself creates a pretty good reason, though. Like they've, yes, they love each other and, and their families are what drive them apart. But there's physical things like when the prince banishes Romeo, that's a pretty sure. pretty harsh thing that that drives them apart and, and forces Juliet into this really difficult situation. Yeah. It's not that she wants to kill herself until the very end when she thinks when she realizes he's dead already. It's it's these extreme measures that get taken to try and uh, circumvent the forces. Yeah. Um, but I think it's I think it's fairly earned. I think, you know, well, it is, not, it is kind not, of ridiculous. Like, yeah. oh, I'm going to sneak you out by ki- pretending to kill you. Like, yeah. Fire Lawrence, come up with a better plan now. Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> but once but it's in motion. It's, it's, I'm not saying that I believe this necessarily. I think yeah, that but it's it is just, a criticism. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. something that I thought about as I was, you know, 
as I was thinking about it, <laughs> I did a lot of thinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, why people criticize the play. Yeah, that's fair. And it might be one of the reasons why. Yep. Villain, I have done thy mother. Um, one of the things that we both remarked upon, I think now that we are so familiar with the play, it's one of the plays most people are so familiar with, mm-hmm. um, reading it a second or a third, or in some cases a fourth or fifth time, you can, you're not focused so much on the story. You can really focus on the language and mm-hmm. it's full of some really beautiful language. Um, Romeo's what I mentioned earlier, oh, brawling love, oh, loving hate, yeah. like that that paragraph of just amazing oxymorons is a beautiful example for English teachers to use yes. to, to say, because what is brawling love? Yeah. What is loving hate? What is serious vanity? Yeah. Like these are things that, you know, oxymorons are a difficult thing to teach. Yes. And you kind of have to get at, it, it, it's a metaphor, but it's... But it depends very much on the context and all those other elements, right? So this is a really great example of, and it shows how Romeo is, um, the Baz Luhrmann production does a really great job of showing him as like a poet almost. Like he spends a lot of time, a lot of his soliloquies and, and, or big speeches are written down first and then he speaks them. It's almost like he has a poet's heart, a poet's mind. And he, you know, it's maybe a little overdone in the, in the whole show, the whole movie is overdone, but yeah, but it it does um, kind of highlight Romeo's youth and his passion Mm -hmm. and it puts it into the framework of a poet's words and actions that well and it comes across in his other even in any production i think his interactions with uh the boys you know he's very witty and wordplayish yeah you know he he likes to be the wittiest guy uh when he is at the top of his game yes when he's not crying over rosalind yeah yeah or worried about uh juliet but yes the few times when he's happy with the boys especially with mercutio he has this great banter and you know he's talking about his pumps being flowered and what have you right so like he he's he is there uh he just has a he's a very witty kind of character um, yeah. that you don't see much of because he is so pining he's, well, he's pining or he's struck dumb by Juliet's beauty although him and Juliet also have such great lines yes. the Palmer the Holy Palmer's that first kiss. I think uh, we, when we talked about Shakespeare's language way back at the start of our podcast which I think was a year ago now yeah, around then. Around then? Yeah, because this, Cause is this our, is episode 24, right? we're doing so. one every two weeks. So, so I think we're... Yeah, we're getting Happy close. anniversary! Yay! Yay. <laughs> um, so way back then, when we talked about sonnets and the Eye of Contaminator kind of mimicking the heartbeat, mm-hmm. uh, and having that be a stand-in for the... Like a, a an aural, A-U-R-L, mm-hmm. um, stand-in for a heartbeat and emotion. Mm-hmm. To have Romeo and Juliet's first words to one another be a sonnet. Yeah. You know, it's and and to have it be such a poetic sonnet, to have it showcase like Romeo being a wordsmith and a poet himself, and then you get Juliet, who up until this point hasn't really had yeah. much to say, and all of a sudden she's like, she's there, she's, she's giving yeah. just as yeah. good, right? It's really something yeah. that has always struck me as one of the best passages in the play. It is, and it, it's it works so well on on so many levels. Like yeah. just listening to it, it's great, but it, it really creates the sense that these are two equals yeah. meeting, you yeah. know, and and they don't even realize it, and as as quickly as, and and foolishly as they fall in love the the quality of their wordplay yeah. together makes it feel like there is something under yeah, there. it's yeah. not just young lust it's not yeah. like oh you're really pretty it's you're really pretty oh and i like your mind yeah exactly <laughs> and we are on the same wavelength yes. like it feels yeah. it feels like a real romantic relationship yeah yeah 
Um, the other uh, scene, obviously, the Queen Mab scene, which we, we spoke of a little bit. Um, Aiden, you'd forgotten that this scene existed. I think um, yep, totally. it's it's one of those that teachers back in my day used to make you remember, um, memorize it, <laughs> which is not really done that much anymore in, in schools. They don't make you well, recite every, you remember, Shakespeare. Everything's in your phone. You don't remember anything anyway. So, But anyway, uh, the whole thing that Mercutio kind of chides Romeo for, it starts off kind of playfully chiding him for, you know, putting so much stock into what he's dreamt. But by the end of of his speech, he's almost like actively railing against mm-hmm. this idea of love and dreams and things that aren't tangible that you can't feel and touch now. Um, you know, when when Romeo tells him, you you talk of nothing and he's like, true, I talk of dreams. dreams yeah. And it's like a slap in the face. Like yeah. he is such a realist. Yeah. And that he's the foil to Romeo, which yeah. is something I think that's why the Queen Mab speech is so important, that it, it sets up that contrast between the two of them. Um, and it leads very nicely into the balcony scene, which mm-hmm. is the last one that I wanted to bring up yeah. just because, um, again, it's so well known and is oft quoted. But it shows these two characters in only their second scene together how how equal they are. The fact that Juliet can break out of her shell, can have this beautiful speech about love, loving someone she's only just met, and then pontificating on names and how yeah. the only thing that's stopping us from being together is your name. Be any other name, you know? Uh, it's it's full of some some of the most flowery language i think and and that that i love so much about shakespeare and romeo has has good stuff too when he's watching juliet from below the balcony and he's comparing her like a jewel in a rich ethiop's ear and and um the whole metaphor about night and which comes up again when when it's the morning after and um, they're debating of whether the sun, it's the sun and a morning lark or yeah. the moon and a nightingale that they hear and see outside yeah. the bedroom window. Which is my favorite. Yeah. 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 But um, it does have a lot of really beautiful language. Do you have any favorite passages or? No, I think you got it from all. Sorry, so... I talked too much. No, no, no. <laughs> I went you did. No, all of them. That, that is, I mean, it is just a, a very well-written play. Uh, some beautiful language and and again uh tying it back to the other things that we've talked about up to this point this is after he's done all the sonnets probably yeah, yeah. uh or they've been published probably already yeah. by this time uh he's really flexed his muscle with his kind of creative muscle with something like uh love's labor's lost in terms of like midsummer night's dream, midsummer night's dream. like these yeah. these ones that have different structures and stuff and this is his traditional structure yeah. there's nothing more traditional than you know they, a five-act a play, five-act play where... with the tragedy starts in the middle uh and there's there's competing elements and forces and stuff uh this is a very traditional play but his wordplay is at the top of his game and it's yeah i think so i think so and it leads really nicely into the the later plays that we're going to be discussing which have um maybe more nuanced language yeah yeah this is very simple but it's very poetic and beautiful yeah yeah if i longer stay we shall begin our ancient bickerings so today's ancient bickerings. Yeah. I'm borrowing from my lesson plan from my Romeo and Juliet <laughs> unit a good plan. Choice, yes. Um, one question that I always ask my my students at the end of the unit, we have a, a nice debate or a Socratic seminar, and we discuss debate. Um, who is ultimately responsible for the deaths of Romeo and Juliet? Hmm. So over the years, I have heard quite a lot of different arguments made um, by 
by minds that I'm, you know, surprisingly, people often think grade nines aren't capable of handling Romeo and Juliet, but they've come up with some really surprising answers. Okay. The one that I'm going to give is one I have not heard yet. Okay. But uh, Aiden, have you have you given this some thought? Do you uh, have an answer for a this? A little bit, but I want to hear yours first you because you've first? heard this whole expanse. I want to hear yeah. yours and then I'll, I'll, I'll come back and you might change my mind preemptively. So the blame for the deaths of Romeo and Juliet rests solely on the shoulders of Capulet's serving men. What? <laughs> yep. Act 1, scene 3. Okay. Capulet gives a letter to his serving men and says, Invite these people to my ball tonight. The serving man can't read. He goes out into the town square and encounters oh, Romeo right. and he Benvolio. Gives he gives them. the letter to them. They see who's on the list. And they go to the party. Mercutio is on the list. Mercutio and his brother Valentine are on the list. So they could have gotten in anyway. Yes, but the then, fact that Benvolio yeah. sees Rosalind is on the list. Romeo is in love with Rosalind. Yeah. Benvolio hatches this plan in his head. That if you go to this party, you examine the other beauties there. I will make you think your swan a crow, he says. But it's all because this poor serving... Maybe we could go back even further well, and blame the Capulet. educational system of Verona, <laughs> which did not well, see fit to teach these <laughs> poor serving men how to read and write. If only he could have read, he wouldn't have needed to... Benvolio and Romeo would have been none the wiser, and neither Romeo and Juliet would have died. I think the play starts... With that, that is the main well, I, inciting incident. If, okay. if I were doing a plot chart, that would be the, the inciting I'll, incident. Okay, that's that's totally fair. I would blame Capulet, who should know that his men can't read and don't give them letters to well, read. Well, I think he just doesn't care. care. Yeah, that's typical of him, it seems like. He's really not a very caring individual. No, but no. Uh, that's interesting, Linz. Uh That's pretty deep cut. Um, I'm going to go the exact opposite end no. and say uh, Romeo and Juliet are to blame. <laughs> oh, blame uh, the victims, why well, don't you? No, Well, he- hear me out, because when you take on this individualistic role, you want to have control of your own fate. Mm. Guess what? Your fate is in your own hands. And yes, uh, the stars have crossed to keep you apart. Um, but, you know, Romeo doesn't have to kill himself. When uh, when he finds out Juliet's been dead, he doesn't have to buy poison. If he doesn't do that, he, then she wakes up and they're like, oh, well, we're together. Let's yeah. go to Mantua. And yeah. it's fine. But he chooses to because uh, he's so in love and mm-hmm. he's so young and foolish. And he thinks that this isn't his entire life. And it winds up being his entire life because right. he's so dumb. Uh, <laughs> you know, but but I it, it's just it if you want to if you want to have the joys of choosing your own love then you also have to suffer the consequences of that choice and uh neither of them do a very good job of that in my mind that is a really interesting argument coming from someone who doesn't believe in free will (laughs) i'm just gonna throw that out there fair enough you and i have thought about this enough that i know that this is (laughs) oh yeah no it's all hard determinism and they were gonna die but that was the you know you have to go back to the big bang for why that was gonna happen right right, so right right. uh, it was written literally in in, the stars the very first star uh whenever whatever black hole collapsed to create this universe (laughs) but i i think what what we're getting at 
here. What I why I love asking this question is that there are so many points in the story where things, if they had just gone a little bit differently, yeah. the outcome could have changed. Well, like I said, the gods coming down and not delivering the letter. Yes, was a, was creating a plague that keeps the second yeah. friar from or Friar Lawrence not getting to the Capel Monument. Yes, the tomb in time. In time. Like yeah. even a, a hair of a or second even, earlier. He, and there's two reasons for why he escapes. At one point, uh, she kind of says, "Go away," and he says, "Yes, I'll be right yeah. back." The other time when he comes back he says a noise startled yes. like there, there's so many yeah. little things that yeah. you are even ambiguous about yeah. why this had to happen like, the way it did you know the nurse yeah uh, paris there are so many different people along the way that yeah. if they had just had which is what makes this such a play that that hinges so much on fate and destiny because it's like you look at all these things and it's easy in hindsight we do it as humans we look back and like if only i hadn't done this and if only i hadn't done that but in this play it really does feel like this was meant to happen and that all of these things you know you can read it 10 times it's not going to change the way like none of these outcomes are going to change so it it's um that's what makes it so tragic though well and it's interesting though because like uh like you're your instance of the uh, most uh, hated, culpable? yeah, culpable uh, fool in this tragedy yeah. is not even existent in a lot of in a lot. Yeah, of no, exactly. Like it in wasn't the, in the Bos Lerman. No, it that was, we watched. No, the the in that film, it's delivered by like a TV address. Yeah, right. And, and then Mercutio brings his invitation, and that's yeah, how they get in. Exactly. So it's it is. Um, yeah, it, it's yeah. it's heavily dependent on the production, but. Um, but, but still, that, but, I mean, but it reinforces your point that it doesn't really matter. There no. is no really individual culpable person because uh, all these forces were yeah. going to happen no matter what. Exactly, you could remove whole characters sometimes, and the play yeah. would still there would still be other things in the play that would push this along um, to this conclusion that was predestined almost. It's it's it really is a tragedy. It is. I'm going to say that. Mm-hmm. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. So, Lindsay, what is our next topic for uh, our special episode? Uh, we are going to be discussing love and sex in Shakespeare in England. Uh, um, so taking, timing. yeah, well, we kind of planned this out a <laughs> yeah, little bit, um, yeah. I think, uh, dealing with, you know, some of these issues of of marriage, uh, marriage for pleasure, marriage for sex, uh, marriage for uh, family reasons, mm-hmm. um, and how the different, how the sexes and the genders played into that. Um, I think there's some, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on um, and is reflected in, in a lot of Shakespeare's plays. So I, I think that'll be a really interesting topic to yeah, dive into. Definitely. Um, the uh, next play. Yes, is King John. Yes. Uh, which I've never read. You've never I've read. never read it. But when I think of King John, I think of Robin Hood and I think of um, the, yes. the the lion with the crown. That was King John? Richard. That was King, King Richard, John. who was... King Richard the Lionheart. Yes. who This was, is King John, who's, who's see, sitting see, in for him. Yeah. And he's the evil King John. Yeah, but King John was actually not king during then. He was king no, after... I, I know, but that's... I'm just saying, when we talk about King John, <laughs> that's I what picture... You think of, yeah. I, you know, I pictured the Robin Hood cartoon. That's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, okay. The Robin Hood cartoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the sexy Robin Hood that is really shouldn't be sexy, but is... No, no, no. No, it the, is. Not the fox. I'm talking about yes. the... No, you're talking Which about the fox. Which cartoon are you talking I'm about? I'm talking about the 1990s one that was Young on, Robin Hood? Yes, the Adventures oh of Young God. Robin Hood. That's, that's where I like, had goes. That's a deep cut. That was like... 
Canadian. I don't think yeah, anybody don't think else anybody in the else world, in the watched world that saw one. that. But obviously, we're going to find a couple episodes on YouTube and watch them before we okay, watch Okay, I guess. Can we watch Robin Hood, the Disney Robin Hood? Because no, that's what I was talking about. No, and the fact that you find a fox sexy. Just I'm not like, the only one. <laughs> I know. It is a this widespread is a, epidemic. Yes, it's not this an epidemic. This is where furries started. Oh, my God. And I'm fine maybe. with it. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying a little weird. <laughs> That is judgy. That's judgy. That is I take very it back. judgy. Take it back. You find your Robin Hood sexy. Whatever Robin Hood it is, even if it's Kevin Costner. No, I don't find Kevin Costner sexy. Okay. Kevin Costner looks like my dad. That's okay. weird. That's fair. That is that, weird. That's, 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 that's judgy, not... but it's. I'm not going <laughs> to. I don't care. Off of that one. <laughs> you can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.